Well, it is a tremendous privilege for me to be a part of this unique uh, celebration today. And as you've already heard, I've had an awareness of your ministry here for many years, really a great respect uh, for this church for a long time. But to participate uh, in your desire to honor your pastor's 10 years of faithful ministry here, well, that is just an extra level of joy uh, for me. Rick and I do have a long history of partnering together uh, in kingdom work. So again, I'm just very, very grateful to be here to study God's word uh, together with you in this special service. Now, on one hand, we are uh, celebrating 10 years of Rick's faithfulness in the ministry here at Mission Road as well as uh, 40 years of faithfulness and ministry over the course of his life. But as you've already heard, uh, we are in an even more important way celebrating really the faithfulness of God. He is the one who has made Rick's years of effective ministry possible. And believe me, those who are in ministry leadership in a position as, as a pastor, uh, a leader in the church, we have to continually go back to that reality of who's in charge and who gets the glory. And that's because of the many burdens that we face as pastors in the ministry. Of course, ministry does bring a, a lot of, of joys along the way. I don't want to discount that, but nevertheless, there are many burdens that we bear and many burdens that we face and challenges. Now I know that reality in two different ways, four different, two different reasons really. Uh, first of all, my father was a pastor, not all his life, but he was a pastor all the years that I knew him. And thus I grew up in the church uh, understanding the role of the pastor, uh, understanding the joys that are there, but also seeing many times my father deal with the challenges and the burdens. So I know this reality because of that. And then second, uh, as Myrl said, I'm a pastor as well. I don't have as many years in ministry overall as Rick does. Rick is a much, much older than I am. And I do look up to him really as a father image, I think, to me. <laughs> but I have been a pastor long enough to experience firsthand uh, all those joys, but also the burdens. It, they just go along with being in ministry leadership. Let me just give a, a comment or two about the burden side of all of that, just so you'll know what I'm talking about. And there are more than just these two categories. But perhaps, number one, the greatest burden is that we are certainly very aware of the need for us personally to be growing spiritually, to be maturing. We, we do need to put into practice, as you heard earlier, affirmed, we do need to put into practice the things that we say and the things that we teach and what we counsel other people. I say this frequently, that... Science may say there's a left brain and right brain, but 
For me, there's a front brain and back brain when I'm discipling someone or counseling someone. I'm, I'm telling them what scripture says about their role as a husband or in marriage and the back part of my brain. That's the front part, the back part of my brain. I'm thinking I, I need to grow in this area. I need to mature. I need to make something right with my wife. So we feel that, that burden that we need to put into practice what we preach. And we certainly depend on the Spirit in that regard. The Spirit is the one who provides the strength and the, and the guidance that we need so that we are growing in character. And yet at the same time, we know that there is a more personal role in that growth. I mean, we're like every other believer in that regard. We have to make personal choices daily to battle the flesh, that unredeemed humanness that we carry with us till the moment of our glorification. We battle the flesh hourly, daily. We have a responsibility, like, like everyone else in the body of Christ. We have a responsibility to put off wrong thinking and wrong behavior and to put on right thinking and right behavior as our minds are being renewed by the Word of God. So there's two sides there to that growth in character. There's the, the divine side and the human side. And that's important to all believers. I get that. But we as ministers live with, I, I guess you could really call it just a heightened sense of accountability from the Lord. We, we know that we are to model the process of sanctification for the congregation. So we therefore live daily with the knowledge that as we are up here or in the office or in someone's living room unpacking the scriptures through our preaching and our teaching and our discipling, we know that the congregation is both listening to all those words but examining our walk. So we have to give much attention to our character because ministry is not just simply about what we do, it's about who we are. So all of that represents one category of burden that we, we live with as pastors. Character matters. Just like doctrine matters. There's another burden category. It's the knowledge that we don't deserve to be doing this. We don't deserve... To be in ministry leadership, we are continually aware of our inadequacy. Now, I've heard it said many times along the way in conferences that, that pastors are known for, for this, to, that they consider resigning every Monday morning. That is a bit of exaggeration, I'm sure, but though not literally true, it's hyperbole, but the point of the hyperbole is something valid. It's not uncommon for a pastor to at least question his calling and to question his abilities. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. That's just something that, that can happen. There are things that can prompt that. It can happen when the congregation... From our perspective, the congregation doesn't respond to our ministry the way, way we had hoped, perhaps. It, it can happen when people that we have invested time in leave the church. It can happen in moments when we're just painfully aware 
of the flesh. We're painfully aware of our own sins and our own frailties. It can happen in those moments when we're perplexed, trying to figure out what to do next in the ministry, trying to make some decision about some issue, and we just don't know what is right to do in dealing with a difficult ministry issue. So that insecurity, which many times is no doubt sinfully prompted, in that questioning of our calling and our sense of our inadequacy, there can be a coldness that can enter in sometimes. And it can overtake us. And, and we can challenge, we, we, can, we, we have to deal with fear at times. We, we can struggle with discontent in moments of time or doubt. My point in sharing examples of our ministry burdens is just to assure you that, that we have to constantly, as pastors, return to the truth in God's word, uh, truth that can help us with all that, truth that can help us think rightly about all that, truth that will help us persevere through the many ministry trials and burdens. In fact, we have to revisit the kind of clarifications that we find in the passage that we're studying this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. It's just one passage we could turn to that pastors have to revisit from time to time, but it is in a passage like this one that we are, as ministry leaders, we're reminded of the convictions that we have, the conviction that we have, that we know in the deepest part of who we are, that the church belongs to the Lord and that the ministry is ultimately God's work. God's in charge. We as pastors have to be reminded of that. God is the one that sets the parameters for everything. God is the one who, who gets all the glory. So please do turn in your copy of the scriptures to this morning to 1 Corinthians 3. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right after 1 Corinthians 2. This is a passage in which the Apostle Paul, the human author, draws upon the topic of farming to make a point, which is why, I don't know if you have this in the bulletin or not, it's, it's the reason I entitled the message for today, Ministry Down on the Farm. Ministry Down on the Farm. Now, I mentioned to you that my dad was a pastor, at least all the days that I knew him, but before I was born, he did all sorts of things. I mean, before his call to the ministry, he held a variety of, of jobs, including, along the way, doing some farming in northern Mississippi. In fact, he and my mother both did some farming in their history, mostly as a, as a sharecropper type person who picked cotton. They did a lot of that. That was true of some of my wife's ancestors as well, farmers picking cotton. I have to admit, there's something very satisfying in knowing that some of our ancestors were, were, were farmers. I mean, they were very poor, but they certainly learned what hard work was all about. Well, that's a metaphor that we're going to find in our passage here today. Paul, using something that that agrarian culture of his day understood very clearly, farming. But let me set the context of our passage for the morning. 
And to do that, it is necessary to summarize what Paul has addressed so far in this epistle. And we're familiar with this epistle. We're familiar with the church at Corinth. There were several problems in the church at Corinth that needed his attention. There was fleshly division in the church with various individuals uh, rallying around, you could say, particular human leaders, teachers. You find a reference to that back in chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 says this. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, quote, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Those were the slogans there in that congregation, picking out the leaders that they celebrated and followed, all driven by a fleshly party rivalry. And amid all that party rivalry, they were also enamored with and pursuing worldly wisdom. And even trying to bring worldly wisdom, wisdom and philosophy into the church. That was going on. And that pursuit of worldly wisdom and philosophy was ultimately due to just their underrating the power of the gospel. The message of the Christ and the cross. So Paul is addressing all that, specifically addressing their quarreling and their divisive spirit in chapters 1 and 2 of this epistle. And you find him there cautioning them against embracing the kind of thinking that would characterize the culture around them, the lost world. And then in chapter 3, he, he returns to and he, and he sums up his concern about that carnal behavior. and he, he knew that it was overtaking the church there in Corinth. Like I said, they, they quarreled and they divided into factions. This carnal, fleshly spirit manifested in rallying around certain teachers and leaders. So Paul addresses this misguided thinking now in verses 5 to 9. And, and this is where we find him using the metaphor of a farm, or you could even say the idea of working in a field to make his point. Uh, one disclaimer, as we look at this, keep in mind something about metaphors and analogies. They're not perfect. In a metaphor, it is true that, that the one articulating it is using a figure of speech where two images are shown to be like one another in some ways that people might not ordinarily recognize. And so it's a valid way of teaching and communicating, but, but not everything about the two sides or the two ideas presented is analogous. So in our passage, even though... It's using the idea of farming to draw out some resemblances to ministry. It's only drawing out some of the possible resemblances. Analogies and metaphors are not perfect. That's true of Jesus' use of the vine and branches, for example, in John chapter 15. Or his use earlier in John of the sheep and the and the sheepfold, that analogy. It's not a perfect one-to-one -one thing, but it, it does make some valid points. So with that disclaimer about biblical metaphors and analogies out of the way, let's look at this passage that represents the kind of truth that pastors like your pastor, like Rick, and, and other faithful men we know in the ministry, is the kind that they keep going back to in their hearts so that they are reminded of how God 
views us and how God views leadership, it's an example of a passage that helps us keep the appropriate focus. In particular, we find some clarifications here. Some clarifications as to how the Lord views ministry and leadership. And these clarifications remind us just how important it is that we keep ourselves, our focus off of ourselves and on the Lord. So I know that Rick is overwhelmed by your graciousness toward him. I, I know that he is overwhelmed by your many expressions of gratitude, but I can assure you he's most overwhelmed by the clarifications like what we find in our passage. Let me read it for us. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So we find here, whether implicitly, I grant you, or explicitly, either one, three clarifications about church ministry and leadership. Here's clarification number one. God determines the opportunities. God determines the opportunities. And by that I mean the opportunities in ministry that people have. Verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Notice that Paul begins the question with what? He doesn't say who. He uses a, a gender neutral term here. And he uses it to, to take everyone's attention away from the person's. And to concentrate that attention on their functions, in other words, the role which leaders have. That's the critical issue. And the overall role is one of servanthood. So we could put it this way. Paul is saying to them and to us, don't you know, after all, what Apollos and Paul actually are? Verse 5 goes on to say, they are servants through whom you believed. That is, they are men who are serving God as they serve the churches. Now that term translated servants is the one we would expect it to be, diakonos. It's a term which originally meant a table waiter. They would use it to refer to someone who had a role of assisting. In the New Testament, it's often used just of service of any, any kind, service that any Christian should render to God. We're, we're all servants in that regard to do God's will. It doesn't matter what the particular role is that each one fills in the body of Christ. We're servants. Later on, this term came to, to be more of the technical term to refer to deacons. But it doesn't have that technical sense here. Here in our passage, Paul is using this term diakonos to emphasize that leaders are mere instruments. Instruments in the Lord's hands. Think about it. We are preaching truth and doctrines that we didn't create. We are having to do all of this in the strength and power that we find in the Spirit outside of us. 
It's his strength that makes our ministry efforts effective. So in the context of Corinth, Paul understood that truth about himself and about his partner, Apollos. They were only instruments through whom the Corinthians came to believe. And that is precisely what Paul knew that God chose him to be, an instrument. You may be thinking like I was when I was studying this of Acts 9 verse 15, where we're giving a we're given a summary of, of Paul's call, what he was called to do. Acts 9.15, it says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine, the Lord says, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's the way God saw Paul. He's mine. He's a chosen instrument of mine. So even though being in a ministry position is a great privilege, and it's one that certainly carries some dignity, ultimately... Those men are, who are leaders and who are gifted, they're simply servants. Servants. Well, why does Paul start this way? Well, because the Corinthians would have answered his question there as if he had begun with the word who and not what. They would have answered as if he said who. They would have said, well, I follow Apollos. He's a powerful orator, teacher. And others would have said, uh, uh, whom do I follow? I, I follow Paul. He's the, he's the gifted man of God. So Paul himself just recoils from that thinking and says, no, you, you've missed it. We, we both belong to the Lord. We're just human instruments that God uses to create into his church and to build his church. But not only do leaders belong to the Lord, their different tasks, their different roles, and the opportunities they have to fulfill these roles, they're all determined by God as well. Look at what verse 5 says as it continues. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. In other words, the idea is that the Lord is the one that's assigned each ministry leader the task he is to fulfill. So not only had Paul and Apollos been placed by God in Corinth, God was the one who had assigned their specific roles in their ministry there. And the roles that God assigns are diverse. And we understand that even when we think of a literal farm. There's plowing and planting and fertilizing and weeding and watering and spraying and cultivating and so forth. And it's the same in ministry. You think of the roles that are possible in ministry and you realize, well, evangelism, that, that's an important role, and it is. But equally important is the teaching of those who come to Christ and are saved to teach believers. Both important. Shepherding and counseling and discipling believers is necessary, are all necessary, but so is administration. And God is the one who determines how he's going to use his various servants in all those roles. Therefore, every leader is called to do the same thing ultimately, and that is just his appointed work. And there's a companion thought to this. Not only do ministers not call themselves to a particular ministry, that opportunity is something God has determined, ministers don't even create their own giftedness for that fulfillment of that role. God's determined where they serve, when they serve, God's the one who determined how they would be trained. 
He's the one that has given them the abilities to fulfill the roles that he's determined for them. And you've heard it already today. Frankly, we're just discussing the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But now we're seeing it as it applies to leadership in the ministry. The Lord is sovereign over all things. And that includes this issue. He determines a particular ministry leader's skills and the opportunities. That's true of Rick. The bottom line is God determined Rick's giftedness. God wired Rick the way he is. God was sovereign over his training. And God is the one at God's appointed time that opened up this opportunity and moved him and his family here to Kansas City. God determines the opportunities. That's a very important clarification that I as a pastor, Rick as a pastor, we have to go back to remember. Number two, clarification number two. God produces the growth. God produces the growth. Now before making this second point here, Paul does provide some more comments about what he's already said about the sovereignly assigned roles that he and Apollos were fulfilling. So he's keeping that thought going on the way to something else here. Verse 6, I planted. That's Paul's part. He was an evangelist, church planter. So in Corinth, he waltzed into that city and he began to plant the gospel seed. And so he is the one that founded the church there. If you look ahead to verse 10, he puts it in different terms. He says, I laid the foundation, an architectural metaphor. Now you find the story of this, the account of all this in Acts chapter 18, verses one through 18, Acts 18, you find Paul's planting recorded. And by the way, Paul loved that role that God gave him. He says that in Romans 15, verse 20. He says that he was very ambitious in Romans 15, 20 to go and proclaim the gospel in places where it had not already been preached. He says it this way, that he didn't want to build upon someone else's foundation. So that was Paul's role. He loved it. And as we've seen, God's the one who determined that he would have that role. But there are other needs in the life of the church. Verse 6 goes on to say, Apollos watered the seed that Paul had planted. And in terms of church ministry, that means he was the teacher. He had a teaching and shepherding ministry amongst them. You find a comment on that in Acts 18, verse 27. It says that Apollos greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So there was a a bit of a distinction of labor that existed between Paul and Apollos. but, But here you see this picture of them both depending on each other. Both necessary. It's no good if someone plants where somebody can't come along and water the seeds. And the one who waters is not going to achieve much. He's just watering barren ground where there's been no seeds planted. So both functions are vital to the success of the overall project. They're equals in the ministry, even though they have sovereignly determined different tasks. This is a great illustration, by the way, of just God's wisdom that he called Paul and Apollos these different roles. They're allies. They're not rivals at all. But more important is what is said next in verse 6. It goes on to say, but God was causing the growth. That's God's job. To bring about the impact that any ministry leader has or that any ministry has 
God causes conversions to happen. God causes church growth, and that's regardless of what human instruments he uses. So just as God sovereignly determines the leadership, including the giftedness of the leadership, including the various opportunities they have, he's also sovereign over this part, all the results. Think about what that means. When the word is going forth from this pulpit or any pulpit, God is not sitting up in heaven eagerly waiting to see what's going to happen. No. He's actively bringing everything about according to his perfect will, a will that was formed in his own eternal mind for Mission Road Bible Church. That is why God told Paul this, by the way, in Acts chapter 18. There was that moment where Paul was fed up and was going to leave Corinth. There was great resistance there. And God came to him and in a vision or dream and told him, no, Paul, continue on. Here's what God told him. I have many people in that city. That was not a guess on God's part. And there's other illustrations in Scripture of God's sovereign control over all the results in ministry. Lots of illustrations. Think of the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. The seeds being cast and there's the hardened ground and and then there's those two soils where it it looks like some plants spring up but then they die off. They're, they're, They're not illustrating people who were truly saved. None of those first three soils are letting us know about people who receive the seed and and get saved. No, it's only the fourth soil. There's fruit that happens. But there's a a variety of results there. Some 100-fold, some 80, some 60, and so forth. That's all part of God's sovereign design. Think of Paul's own ministry in Acts chapter 17. In Athens, he goes into that city that's, that's known for all of its pagan philosophies and philosophers, and he preaches this textbook sermon there. Mentions the resurrection. In Acts 17, it tells you what the results were in verses 32 to 34, that some sneered at him. Others said, I've got to think about it. But some responded and believed. It's always been that way, always will be that, that way, and that's all part of God's sovereign design. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul tells the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. That's a statement of God's sovereign activity in the lives of his people. So our point is, God himself, according to his own sovereign plan, evokes faith in the ones who are lost, and he is the one who causes true believers to continue to grow and to change I think my favorite verse on God's sovereignty is Psalm 115, verse 3. And it applies to everything in life, including ministry. Psalm 115, verse 3 says that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Just so you'll know, back to our text, something about those verbs planted and watered. They're in a tense, a verb tense, that sort of wraps up all their work in just one great summary idea and looks at, at it as being completed. But the, but the verb was causing is in a different tense. And, and that's indicating how God's sovereign work is, is going on continuously. Even when Paul's role there and Apollos' role there ended. So the point is that our attention should always be on the Lord. And you've heard that this morning. He 
is the main character in every church. All the roles are important. None should be minimized. But still, it's all in vain unless God intervenes and by his power produces spiritual life in spiritually dead people and by his power causes growth. So verse 7 says it again. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Kind of a shocking statement that from the ultimate perspective, Paul and Paulus count for nothing. (laughs) Now that sounds like an insult almost, but we have to read it in the context. It's, It's understood that he's speaking in hyperbole here. I mean, they're not literally nothing. It's just whom you're comparing them to. If you put them next to God, it's understood they're, they're not the most important players. So the various leaders and ministries in the church, they have different callings, different styles, different abilities, all though pursuing one common purpose to fulfill God's will in their particular ministry context. Or to use the farming idea again, they're, they are inter, interdependent and complementary each contributing something that's producing a crop under the Lord's sovereign plan. Planters scatter the seed, and it's not our seed. God supplies it, his word. We, we plant it in soil and cast it upon the soil, and it's soil that God has created, and so forth. Even the rainwater of the ministry, the watering of the word, it's still of the seed is still the word that God has supplied. So it's, we understand this. Ministry effectiveness depends on the Lord. He does not need any particular leader. He does not need any particular individual. But you can never say that in reverse, that the laborer, the minister, is without the need of the Lord. That's just not true. I love what the commentator Rosner said. When it comes to church growth, only God has absolute significance. And here's a quote from Luther, by the way, as he commented about his own role in what we know as the Reformation. He said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Rick knows that to be true. Every biblically thinking church leader knows that to be true. And therefore, God's the one who gets all the glory. So God determines the opportunities. God produces the growth. Here's clarification number three. It has to do with the fact that leaders and ministers will be held accountable to God. Not, I think I said cannibal. We're not going to be cannibals. That's, That's something different. Accountable. Clarification number three. God evaluates the work. God determines the opportunities. God produces the growth. God evaluates the work. Verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, the idea is that all the roles roles are important, but the laborers themselves are interchangeable. Paul says they're one. Just a side comment. That's why rivalry in the ministry and, and competition, fleshly competition in church ministry is really absurd. Uh, again, I'll quote a commentator, Garland, on this. 
quote, the field in which they labor is not a battlefield where workers vie with one another for supremacy. It's a farm, a place under cultivation so that fruit is produced. So we're all working together for the same end. We're working with the Lord and what he's doing. We're working for him. We're under his sovereign leadership. Or as I like to say it sometimes, and this is definitely applicable to someone like Rick, and it's true of my own ministry as well, though we may have different jobs in different locations, we nevertheless work for the same company. We're just at different branches of the office. So I'm like Rick. I've worked for the same company for decades. I just transferred along the way to a couple of different branches. Right now, I work at a Winston-Salem, North Carolina branch. Rick's at a Kansas City branch. Home office is in heaven. That's where we get our orders. But though the articulation might be different, the words might be a little bit different, we all have the same mission statement then in some way. All working for the same goal, the glory of God and extension of his kingdom. But verse 8 continues and gives us this third clarification. Verse 8, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now that term for reward, or you may have a translation that says wages. The term here indicates that all the work done for the Lord is going to be recompensed. Even though the rewards are not necessarily the same. But he uses the term labor here, being rewarded. That draws attention to the work itself, the hard work involved, and the diligence of the servant. So the point is that each laborer has been given a different task in God's field, on his farm, and as well, each laborer, his work is being evaluated by the Lord, and each will receive a separate reward for his toil. And the significance of this is that the laborers will not be rewarded according to their success. It says their labor, their work. The Lord, the divine evaluator, will assess each individual servant and his work, each individual distinctive contribution, but it's their labor. It's not their talents. Not their gifts, it's not their personality, but their labors. That puts the least known leader out there that we may never hear of on a level with the most famous, what the world would say is the least honored on a a level with the most highly favored one out there, Because at the end of the day, what is key is faithfulness to the work. Faithfulness. The faithful, hard-working minister, or the faithful, hard-working missionary, or frankly, Sunday school teacher, or deacon, or helper, who labors maybe in obscurity, will receive this reward far beyond some who maybe are famous. So what is the reward exactly? Well, Paul doesn't say. (laughs) He doesn't really fully develop the thought here. We can notice that he uses the future tense. So this is something about the future. It's talking about 
ultimately the reward at what we call the, the judgment seat of Christ, not a judgment of unbelievers, but a judgment of rewards for believers. Now, he doesn't say what it is, but no doubt. I mean, you and I both understand this, that just to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, that, that's going to be more than enough. But I have to say the apostle does hint at something else here. We'll just have to leave it where it is, not developed. But the conclusion we should reach is clear. God's the one who provides this ultimate evaluation of ministry efforts. He's the one taking note of what ministers say and do and who they are and how they do it and why they do it. He's the one we're ultimately accountable to. And the key thing he's looking for is faithfulness to the work. Well, verse 9 concludes our section. And in it, Paul uses this little introductory term for. It's a, it's a word of explanation, really. He uses it to, to reach back and embrace and explain the entire argument of the paragraph in just a few words. Summarize it. Verse 9. For... We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's just bringing everything we said to a conclusion here, and we find once again that God is the singular focus of it all. In fact, in the Greek, the name God is actually uh, first in all these expressions. We don't translate that way in English. It actually is something like this. God's fellow workers we are. God's fields, God's building are you. Sounds a little bit like Yoda, you know, reading it. But, but Paul wrote it that way, intentionally, to emphasize that everything is God's. The church, its ministry, the workers. Everything belongs to him on this farm. He does suddenly introduce a new metaphor, the figure of a building. That's how he's going to segue into this architectural metaphor that's going to be developed in the verses that follow now. So I don't know, perhaps I will come back on Rick's 20th or his 30th and develop what's said in verse 10 and following. I'll let you know what nursing home I'm in and so you can find me. Like I mentioned before, I know, I know Rick is encouraged by you. He's encouraged by your expressions of love and gratitude today. In fact, it is biblical to express this kind of appreciation. I'm reminded of what the Apostle says in Romans chapter 13, verse 7. Render to all what is due them, including honor to whom honor is due. And obviously in that context, it's referring to something specific, but... But there's a general principle there that, that there is this expectation on our part to, to render the, the honor in whatever context it is to the one who's due that honor. And so you should do that. So I thank you on his behalf. You, you should be thankful for him. You should honor him. And we've heard this already. There's many reasons for that. Rick is, Rick is obviously knowledgeable of the scriptures and he's knowledgeable of theology and can defend the faith. You've seen it for these ten years. Rick is, is a very gifted expositor. 
of God's Word. He's proven himself to be a a diligent worker. And he's tall and good looking. I mean, I should say that too. Which one are you questioning, by the way, of those two? And I know you agree with this. Kim deserves honor as well. Just hearing her talk this weekend, and I've heard this other times from her, as she has faithfully served alongside Rick, she loves this church. She loves this city. She's very grateful to be here. I mean, Rick and Kim, that's who Pam and I want to be when we grow up, okay, basically. But seriously, you are blessed that the Lord transferred the Hollands from one branch of his church to the Mission Road branch ten years ago now, so give honor to whom honors due. But I assure you they both know that the celebration of their faithfulness is in reality a recognition of God's faithful work here in Mission Road, not just the ten years they've been here, but in, of, of all the years of its existence. And that does lead, I think, to a proper closing thought for us this morning. Our greatest allegiance for each one of us is to Christ and Christ alone. We read from Colossians 1, starting verse 25 earlier. I'm going to back up and just close with an earlier verse. Colossians 1, verse 18. He, Christ, is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We like to say this sometimes, you know, when you see words like that, we like to say as pastors, in the Greek, the word everything means everything. Christ, first of all, let's pray.